Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and thanks for joining us today. We talk a lot about privacy in the United States. As individuals, we talk about our right to privacy and we complain from time to time about what we perceive as a violation or loss of our privacy. As business leaders, we talk about the need to protect the privacy of our employees and customers. More often than not these days, the conversation at work and at home centers on data privacy. What personal information is collected about us? By whom? And how is it used? How is it stored and for how long? Who has access to it, and is it sold to third parties? As longtime listeners to this podcast know, there is no single data privacy law at the federal level, and we're just at the beginning of states adopting their own comprehensive data protection laws. Despite what some might describe as a slow march to data privacy, 2022 has been a very active year in state capitals, and there could even be action in Congress on the horizon. Because this is such a wide-ranging topic with a lot of nuance, we're going to break this discussion into two episodes. Today, we're going to talk about what's been happening at the state government level, and next week, we'll dive into what may or may not turn out to be landmark federal legislation. Here to help us get a better view of data privacy landscape, as it is today, are two of the nation's leading attorneys in this space, Kristen Bryan and Glenn Brown from Squire Patton Boggs. And as always, we'll be joined by the ITRC CEO, Eva Velasquez, to give us the point of view of identity crime victims. I'd like to start by you know, framing this as saying, look, we've been talking about these issues for a very long time. And over time, technology has advanced. The use of data has expanded. And we've seen the exponential growth of both good and bad uses of personal information. And the bad uses usually involve some sort of identity crime. So at the ITRC, that is the lens by which we view most things. So we've gotten to the point where after 17 years post the first real data breach controversy that captured everyone's attention, we're 17 years past that. We're just now at a point where we have decided that privacy and identity and cybersecurity are all interconnected. And we now have, at this point, five states with their own privacy laws. We still don't have a federal privacy law, which we will talk about later. But let's talk for a minute about those five states and and how they got to where, where they are and why is it that those were the five states. And then we can talk about, you know, how they have each one uniquely in some cases approached it in other ways, not so unique. So I want to ask each of you the same question. What's your general thought about why we now have states adopting their own privacy laws? When we're looking at the federal quote unquote privacy law, it will be one of these comprehensive laws like the states are doing that is taking into account, not just privacy, but privacy, notification, cybersecurity, digital identity, and all of those pieces. Um, So, you know, why did they do it? Well, California was the first, but uh, that's not unusual. And hopefully there'll be more to come. Yeah, I have a slightly different um, perspective on it. Um, I mean, I would say that there have been privacy laws at the federal level for a very long time, um, privacy understood broadly. Um, But they've always been 
uh, sectoral, right? They've always been specific to a given industry or a given data type. So, um, you know, you've got the Fair Credit Reporting Act um, that that governs um, data used in certain types of uh, consumer reports like um, employment screening or your typical credit report used for lending. Um, you've got HIPAA uh, at the federal level that governs the youth use of certain healthcare information. You've got the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that, that governs certain bank relate, uh, banking and finance-related information. So you've got these this patchwork of, of laws. Um, and you had, um, in many cases, state analogs to those laws. And so for a long time, you've had um, a patchwork of state privacy laws as well. But of course, as, as we all know, um, the kind of privacy law we're talking about now is much different in the sense that, as Eva said, it's, it's comprehensive and no surprise to anyone that California would be the first. Um, I think privacy advocates all over the country um, and, and including California have been looking um, to the EU as sort of leading the pack and, you know, what can we do to emulate the EU's approach because it's so comprehensive? Well, the, the EU is different in the sense that it's got, a constitutional right of privacy uh, in the EU constitution. It's embedded in their constitution. So it's very fundamental to their um, set of laws they've got. And so it should be no surprise that um, it's got laws that sort of support that constitutional principle. Um, There are states, uh, including California and the U.S., that have a constitutional right of privacy, but it's never been one um, that's historically been either, you know, enforced or taken all that seriously, to be honest. And so I, I think that, um, you know, privacy advocates that are responsible uh, for the enactment of laws like um, the CCPA slash CPRA in California, we're definitely looking to emulate um, what the EU has done in this area. So no surprise that California is second, I mean, is, is the first state to do this. I think there was a lot of surprise that Virginia was the second state to enact a comprehensive privacy law. Uh, I don't know that many people had seen that coming, um, except in the sense that privacy laws in the last, say, four years, five years, um, have been increasingly um, bubbling up in state legislatures all over the country. Um, it is, like I said, it was surprising that Virginia's got enacted and that it was the second one to do so, but uh, it was merely one of, of many states considering it. Um, and, you know, so that was a bit of a surprise. Um, you know, Utah, I, I don't want to address each one of the states, but but I think, you know, you've got, again, um, this kind of bubbling up of, of a sentiment for and a desire for uh, comprehensive privacy legislation uh, in many states. And so I think it will only continue. There's, to my knowledge, uh, there's not another bill that's sort of on the cusp of becoming law or anything. Anything. Um, a lot of the state legislatures are not in session. Um, but in the next legislative session, I think you'll see states like Washington State, who has for years been trying to get a comprehensive privacy bill passed and seemingly failing on like the one inch line every every time. Um, but states like Washington, states like New York, would have been, I think, I think 50 something different, you know, privacy bills. Uh, bills addressing privacy in some form have been have been um, introduced over the years. So I think New York is another you know prime uh, example of a state where we would expect to see privacy law in the near future if no federal alternative is enacted. Um, so I'm sorry, James, that answered your question. <laughs> 
no, that, no, that's that, 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 that's that's good. It's good information. And New York is always interesting too because they actually had a a, a really strong financial services regulation that sort of yes has the DFS has, yeah the DFS yeah. part five hundred yeah. Yep. Yeah, pre- precursor to a lot of what we now see in California. So, um, uh, Kristen, though, you view this probably through the lens of a litigator. So what has yeah, I, what has this meant for you? Yeah, it's uh, from the, a litigation standpoint, as uh, someone who routinely handles these cases in state and federal courts across the country, uh, the development of um, these five states uh, passing uh, comprehensive privacy laws. Um, you know, certainly California, as Glenn said, no surprise there. It's It's been at the forefront of a lot of developments concerning privacy litigation, uh, data breach litigation claims being, pro- being brought. Um, but then in, in my mind, uh, the approach taken by Colorado, taken by Virginia, taken um, by Utah and Connecticut, these are very different states with uh, different uh, litigation um, case dockets in the realm of data privacy and cybersecurity. But it seems as though, by virtue of the fact that there's no private right of action in any of these four statutes, uh, it was really uh, a recognition that um, privacy and data security matters uh, obviously impact individuals, impact individuals residing in that state. Um, but it also, uh, you know, impacts uh, the business community. And um, while there have been some states that have taken specific approaches, such as Illinois, in passing uh, privacy laws with a private right of action, um, you know, the majority of states with comprehensive privacy laws have not followed that approach. And to the extent uh, broader uh, legislative activity at the state level is considered, um, I would see the majority approach being taken by these four states as continuing to carry over. Um, I would suggest that to the extent uh, states are looking to enact uh, more detailed privacy laws dealing with uh, tailored issues such as biometric privacy, facial recognition, AI and automated processes, uh, that's where you're more likely to see uh, civil enforcement in addition to uh, enforcement uh, discretion be invested with the state AGs as well. So you mentioned a couple of hot buttons there for the ITRC. So Eva, uh, in particular, now that we have embedded in these five states anyway, um, more of a model of consent and access, and in and I, th- I think in all of them, you guys correct me, but I think they all have some, at least a limited form of a right of correction. I know the CPRA does, CCPA may not, but the, you know, those are kind of the bedrock principles that people have been talking about for years. Those are important to crime identity crime victims, aren't they? Even and that's one of the things that uh, that really can help people prevent becoming a victim if they have good knowledge of what information is available and how it's being used? I I think that's the fundamental piece. Uh, There are always going to be things that are outside of these individuals' control. And we expect when they give consent to capture and store their data and use their data, and then the, the organization suffers a breach, well, that's completely outside the individual consumers control. But most of the time, they don't really know that they've given consent 
in the first place. They don't understand how their data is being used. What's the, you know, what's the biggest lie on the internet? I have read and understand and agree with the terms and conditions of using this website. And so, yes, that is a fundamentally important aspect to all of this for the ITRC because a, a well-educated uh, population, we think, is going to help reduce at least some of the victimization rates and re-victimization rates, which, by the way, this this may be um, news to my my fellow guests here. Um, we're seeing a twenty nine percent re-victimization rate in identity crimes. Mm. Um, so these are folks that this isn't just happening to the once; it's happening over and over. And and so this allowing them to understand and know, first of all, say yes, you may have access to my data and understand what's being collected about them. We can't really move forward with any of the other solutions we want to put in place until that happens. I just articulated the, the, the what's included in most of these of the, of the five states. Now the, the core rights of consumers, there's obligations for businesses. Are those, do those mirror in each of those state laws as well? And how are businesses, you know, preparing for that to the degree that you guys know? I mean, I think you've got, um, you know, a lot of similarity among the five states, uh, maybe more similarity than differences. Um, as you said, you know, many of the rights are the same um, and many of the obligations, I, I won't say the same uh, because they certainly vary in, in the details. But um, conceptually, the, the laws are fairly similar. They, you know, they all require a certain amount of notice and transparency into how data is being used through things like privacy policies, but also things like notices of collection. Um, you know, most of them, I think Utah being an exception, uh, provide for things like risk assessments that require to be done in certain circumstances. Um, they, all of them, uh, except again, Utah, um, reflect something that, uh, in the EU is known as the proportionality principle, which is uh, essentially that, you know, when a business collects or processes personal information, you know, that information that they collect and process really needs to be relevant to the purpose of the processing and limited, uh, you know, to what's, what, what's necessary. I mean, you know, so, so you don't collect more information than you really need for the purposes you're saying you're going to use it for. Um, so that's, you know, that was not actually, oh, that was in a, in a very vague way. It was in the CCPA, but it was, that concept was strengthened in the CPRA and then was included in, in the Virginia and Colorado and Connecticut laws. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's from a, from your perspective, I think that's a pretty important concept because it, it, it sort of goes to the concept of data minimization, you know, companies not having more data you know, hanging around than they really need. That's something that, you know, you see gets a lot of companies in trouble um, because if there is a issue, um, it's just that much more data that can be accessed and, and um, used for nefarious purposes. So I think, you know, the, the concept of data minimization is an important one that you've seen regulators um, sort of beat on the drum about um, and you've seen reflected in these laws. And I think it's uh, becoming widely embraced. My favorite saying these days is you can't breach what you don't have. So yeah, that's data right. minimization is very important. 
gone are the days, I think, when, you know, in the old days, as, as James can probably attest to, um, data companies were very fond of just sort of obtaining data with the thought that it might be useful in the future at some point for some purpose, um, you know, hoarding data, basically. Um, I, I think those days are, are gone. They're on. They're on the way out, uh, Glenn. But you know, I took my uh, oldest daughter to a kid's birthday party at an indoor trampoline park two weeks ago. And then the categories of information that I was having to fill out to give consent for both of us to jump (laughs) at the birthday party, uh, let's just say it far exceeded what was needed for a waiver uh, of premises liability. Um, so I think you're right as to where things are trending, but we're clearly not there yet across the board in terms of uh, practices still varying to some extent by, by industry as well. Let's talk here briefly about the CPRA because, you know, that's that date is coming rapidly, January 1st-ish. <laughs> uh, we'll see what the actual enforcement date becomes once the actual rules are are, are put in place. So that, you know, just as a reminder to everyone, the CCPA was created by the legislature. It was written in a couple of weeks. It was refined in a, a later session, but it didn't cover everything that the people who originally wanted it. Um, and so we had a ballot initiative. And so the CPRA was um, a cre- is a cre- creature of the voters. It was approved by popular uh, popular vote. And that goes now into effect. And it's a stronger law. It covers a lot more territory than the original did. What do we know about how it's going to impact things and how are other, other pieces of legislation in other states being impacted by it? At least the proposals are being impacted by it. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be impactful um, uh, a number of respects. I mean, one, as you say, it goes farther than the CCPA did. It introduces additional rights. It introduces um, additional obligations on companies. Um, and not only does it introduce these additional rights, these additional obligations, but now you've got um, the first government agency in the history of the U.S. at a federal or state level whose um, primary uh, and sole responsibility is enforcing privacy law, that that agency being the California Privacy Protection Agency. Um, So you've got all of these new obligations, these new rights, and you've got an agency whose um, purpose for existing is to enforce those obligations and rights. And so you're going to get a lot more attention paid to it. Um, and so I think that is, you know, that's really going to um, focus uh, businesses' attention on ensuring that, you know, they have a reasonably compliant um, compliance program. Um, I think it, one of the interesting things it does uh, um, is it really increases the number of contractual requirements on on businesses. You know, if I'm a if I'm a business and I've collected personal information. Uh, say I want to sell it to an, another business. Well, there are now going to be contractual provisions that I have to put in place with the other party that's purchasing that data that govern the use of the data. Um, if I've got a vendor that that you know analyzes data for me or, or does something to the data uh, on my behalf, um, the CCPA included provisions that needed to be 
in agreements with those types of vendors. But the CPRA expanded what needs to be in those in those um, agreements, expanded the provisions that need to be addressed. It also um, sort of tightens um, the relationship between a business and its uh vendors who are considered service providers under the CPRA. It tightened how consumer rights um, get effectuated, get get exercised and, and operationalized by requiring a lot more communication between a business and its service providers and contractors. Um, when, when a, a consumer, for example, um, asks that you delete or correct data, those requests now need to be communicated to other parties, parties that you've um, you know, either you know given data to to process on your behalf or data that you've sold. Uh, it, there's going to be a lot more communication in this sort of data ecosystem, and that's something that um, many companies are not going to be used to and are going to need to have to figure out. Also, just going to say on the litigation front, uh, certainly with um, the enactment of the CCPA, uh, it has a private right of action with liquidated statutory damages in the context of security breaches. And um, notwithstanding uh, that limitation on the availability of, um, you know, when uh, individuals or punitive classes uh, can seek uh, relief. Um, there's really been a proliferation of uh, litigation um, for, you know, for purported violations of the CCPA. And with the CPRA's expansion um, of, uh, you know, the, the classification of certain data and uh, the scope of this pre-existing private right of action, um, I think that trend is also certainly going to persist going forward, where, uh, you know, right now I'd say about half of my uh, cases um, for clients are on the West Coast, and um, that's uh, representative of uh, what we're, we're seeing more broadly there. Given the fact that it looks like there is at least a discussion at the federal level that's more serious than we've seen in a while, um, what is the outlook for other states? Is, is, is this going to, we're going to see this kind of expansion, and maybe fourth time is a charm in Washington, maybe third time is a charm in Florida, um, what do we think is going to happen now, or we're we just going to mark time for a while and see what the feds do? I mean, I think my, my two cents is I, th- I think there will be um, will be further enactment of of state comprehensive privacy laws in states like Washington and New York, like we said, uh, maybe Massachusetts. Um, and so, you know, the, as I said, that a lot of the state legislatures are have adjourned, um, and so. You know, there's not the same level of activity as there was, you know, four months ago, say. Um, but when they come back, um, I think there'll be, uh, unless unless a federal bill uh, is really progressing and really appears to have legs um, such that, you know, folks think it would just be a waste of time, which I don't think will be the case. Uh, I think you'll you'll see the same momentum and same activity um, going forward for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, I I tend to agree with Glenn, where certainly it's a very exciting development uh, to see the introduction of, um, you know, the proposed uh, federal privacy bill. Uh, And it does, in some ways, I look forward to covering with this group, uh, represent um, significant progress in terms of not taking a one-sided approach to data privacy and having several key features that are very uh, appealing to um, both private individuals 
individuals and uh, the business community, which at this point is seeking a greater certainty through uniform uh, privacy legislation. Um, but regardless of how uh, this new bill progresses, progresses in you know in Congress. Um, I see state activity continuing unabated. Uh, first of all, bear in mind that at least as currently drafted, the um, bill under consideration at the federal level would exempt several uh, state uh, privacy regimes, including, uh, you know, Illinois and BIPA from its scope. Um, and then also, uh, besides, um, you know, these uh, broader state privacy bills, that have been repeatedly introduced and, and failed. Maybe they'll pass again. Florida, I'm looking to you. Uh, <laughs> consider it again. Uh, you know, I, I do think there are other top of mind issues um, in the realm of data privacy and security that are only now coming to the forefront and a recent area of concern by privacy advocates. And that would include, I would say, um, as I mentioned before, the uh, expanded use of uh, facial recognition in the, uh, you know, with potential applications in the healthcare sector, um, in you know, in in other industries as well, uh, with the collection uh, and use of biometric data, which, as we all know. Um, Unlike a credit card, which uh, if stolen, you can you can simply uh, get a new card, and there you know there is some inconvenience involved in uh, addressing that issue. If someone has your fingerprint, uh, well, that's with you for the rest of your life. Um, so I think there will be uh, you know repeated uh, focus on um, some of these developing issues within the realm of privacy and uh, state legislatures as we saw um, already this year with over 100 privacy bills being introduced at the state level, many of which were not comprehensive, but uh, designed to address uh, specific sub-issues. Um, I would predict a repeat of that uh, in fall uh, 2023, uh, 2022, and also going forward to 2023. Now, having discussed the privacy movement at the state level, there is for the first time in many years a bipartisan agreement between committee leadership in the House and the Senate on federal privacy legislation, with the exception of one Senate committee chair who hasn't committed just yet. The American Data Privacy and Protection Act is wide-ranging and may overcome the two objections that have kept privacy legislation from moving forward for decades. That's federal preemption of state laws and the right of an individual to file a lawsuit, also known as the private right of action. But we're short on time today. So tune in next week for part two of this discussion when we will talk about the chances that we'll actually see a federal privacy law. Until then, thanks to you, Eva. Thanks to you, Kristen, and thanks to you, Glenn. If you want to learn more about Squire Patton Boggs' view on the latest legal and legislative events related to privacy, visit consumerprivacyworld, all one word, .com. If you think you've been the victim of an identity crime or you want to avoid becoming a victim, you can speak with an ITRC expert advisor on the phone, you can chat live on the web, or send us an email during our normal business hours. Just visit us at our website at idtheftcenter.org to get started. Be sure to join us next week for part two of our discussion on privacy laws. Until then, thanks for listening.